Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. And away we go. It is a Friday edition of Loving Liberty. This is the first hour of our broadcast and podcast, so, you know, there's... If for some reason something doesn't scratch the itch for you in this hour, you've always got another hour to choose from. But I'll tell you, I have carefully handpicked intriguing topics uh, that will hopefully build and enlighten and maybe even inspire. And in the odd case, might actually aggravate or enrage. I guess it all depends on where you're coming from. There's a note I want to start on. And look, I, I don't know who needs to hear this. Maybe it's me. Maybe this is just for me. But uh, last night I was on Facebook and I saw a posting by, well, it was actually from a cousin of mine, of all things. And I, I, don't, I don't think I've even actually met this cousin except for maybe once in my life when I was very, very young. So it's, it's not like we grew up together. He has lived in other places. But, you know, as I get older, I, I do try to stay in better touch with family because, well, time is fleeting and family is important. And so I, I really was intrigued by his post because he seemed to be in despair. And I'm going to share with you, this is, this is what he had to say. He said, I am anti-Trump. He should never have been elected. My problem now is that the Democrats are so splintered, they have no hope of defeating Trump unless he is impeached, which is very uncertain. He says, Clinton needs to stay out. The Democrats must consolidate. Right now, more Dems keep coming in, which simply makes Dems hope less. And he says this convoluted process is destroying our country. The completely splintered Dem leaves us average, open-minded people hopeless. Now, look, you may think, oh, great, you're going to just sit here and make fun of me. I'm really not, though. I I can see the, the despair coming through here. And the fact he's anti-Trump, I mean, you know, some people are going to need your, how dare you? How dare you impugn President Trump? So my purpose here isn't to prop up Trump and tell you, hey, the guy walks on water. But I use this to illustrate that there are people who are, for whatever reason, absolutely consumed with this sense of despair that, well, you know, because he's president, our, our lives are just just terrible. And I look at some of the folks who've responded here, and, you know, some of them are kind of circumspect. Yeah, it's kind of a mess. Yeah, very sad. Someone else saying, well, I'm just waiting for a candidate, any candidate. I don't have to plug my nose to vote for. It hasn't happened yet, I'm, yet I'm really disillusioned. Is there anyone with some semblance of integrity? Is that asking too much? And to this, my cousin responded, well, I can't vote for Trump or Clinton, so what do I do? The prospects are not hopeful right now. Now, you can probably guess where, where I would be coming from on this, right? Maybe not, so I'll tell you. My, my idea is, look, this is, this is one of the reasons why I find myself becoming a political agnostic. I'm becoming very politically, well, I'm becoming very apolitical. There we go. Because I see this kind of hopelessness. I see this kind of uh, despair. Oh, we can't get a good candidate. And I hate the one who's in office. Right? I, the one who's in office concerns me. I think that our, our whole country is being destroyed. Now, a few weeks ago, 
I I wrote a column for Southern Utah Now about uh, the how individual goodness is the antidote to collective turmoil, which I think collective turmoil really sums up what happens to us every time we get deep into an election cycle. And my recommendation is don't worry so much about politics. Don't worry so much about trying to convince other people, hey, this is how you need to see things. Because more often than not, you're going to find out all that effort, all that time spent arguing over the minutia of, well, this politician did this and that one did that. It just bring it, it focus you, focuses you on the negative, And that in turn makes you a more negative person. That's the nature of politics. So I shared that article with my cousin and just said, look, here's here's some food for thought. I'm not telling him, you know, this is the way it is. Just consider this. And my cousin responded, well, that was helpful. Just doesn't give me help with what I can do. Trump needs to be gone, but the Dems are offering little in response. Only splintered prospect, none offering much hope. And I think it comes down to where you put your hope. So I've been trying to formulate what's what's a good way to to help somebody consider that maybe maybe politics is poison. And if we keep going back and sipping on that little bottle, we just keep making ourselves miserable. Now, some are going to hear what I'm saying as, you know, well, what are you suggesting? Bury your head in the sand, turn your back on politics, you know, entirely. That's a choice every one of us has to make. All I'm suggesting is if we put as much effort into building up the people and the institutions that are directly around us, that are right there where we have influence, maybe we wouldn't be so miserable or feel so hopeless. And that starts with just being a good neighbor, you know, a good parent, a good grandparent, a a friend. Well, but that doesn't do anything to solve the political problem. And I I guess what I'm getting at is you solve the political problem by making the conscious choice to direct your efforts towards something a little more productive. Look, the news media is going to continue to report every political story as if it is the most important thing in the world. That's the fuel that runs so much of what we see and hear in the media today. But it doesn't change the fact that the people who are most serious about making a difference, and I mean a positive difference, big things, little things, whatever it may be, can do so much outside of the realm of politics. And and I have one other thought here, and that is it's a conscious choice to let politicians live rent free in our heads. And I've been guilty of this myself. I'm not exaggerating when I tell you that back during Bill Clinton's presidency, there was times there were times where I would sit back and I would consciously set aside, okay, here's 10 minutes of the day. I'm just going to sit here and I'm just going to hate Bill Clinton. That lying, philandering piece of... And I think back on that now, and I mean, it was I, I wasn't giving, you know, hours and hours to it. But I still think that was wasted time. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm suddenly thinking, you know, Bill Clinton was actually a pretty good person, all things considered. My point is, I gave time to him. I let him live rent free in my head and my life was no better for it. And so if you're feeling despair, if you're feeling that hopelessness right now, 
First of all, that's a conscious choice. You don't have to go back and pick up that little bottle of poison called politics and take another sip. But many people do. Maybe most people. Look at what drives discussion in just about every bit of social media and so much online discussion. What if there was a more productive way to use your time? And I'm not here to tell you what that is. I'm just asking, asking you to consider what if that more productive way exists? Because I'm confident that there are people who, if they looked at this and, and considered it, would find a better way to apply themselves. And I think they would be happier for it. Now, it's only a suggestion, so it's worth exactly what you paid for it. Let's go to the phone. 801-331-8113. Hi, welcome to Loving Liberty. Hello, Brian. Sam calling. How Sam, good to hear from you. Hey, absolutely. Yeah, you're just on at a time where a lot of times I'm out from the, the house and don't have a phone to call in on, but uh, that's okay. It's uh, When I find time, I definitely do. My answer to this is, my first question would be is, what would your cousin be looking for a candidate to do? I mean, for example, what has changed really under Trump that we didn't have under the previous president? An excellent question. And, and my mean, answer at, my answer would be nothing. Absolutely nothing. I mean, look at, for example, the situation that you guys have out west. You still have the BOM, the Bureau of Land Management creating problems out there, which is a combination state issue and a federal issue. Um, you still have, um, we still have a lot of the kangaroo courts out there that we had back when the Bundys went through their, uh, situation out there. Um, we still have corruption at an all-time high like we ever had. I mean, the, the bottom line is, what people forget is that we really need to be looking, kind of like what you were saying, uh, uh, from a local level up, uh, you know, maybe like try to work at the, the, at the state level. If we could get the states to quit being lapdogs to the federal government, that would be a good start right there. Amen. I mean, a, a good case in point, this real ID that's coming down the pike, which I hate. And the more I look into it, the more I hate it, and the more I uh, am um, definitely going to resist it. Um do you want to hang through the break? Do you want to hang you through bet, the break? We, we, okay, we got a breakaway. Uh, Sam is on the line with us from Missouri. We will be back right after these messages. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. I've got Sam on the line with me from Missouri. Sam, let's pick up where we left off. Yeah, um, basically where I'm coming from on all this, and uh, um, to allude to a conversation you and I had during the break just a while ago, if you go back, those of you that were in the, and maybe still into classic rock, I don't know, but I, I was and still am, but there was a song by uh, Pink Floyd, you know, that said, uh, you know, that talked about being another brick in the wall. And it was, you know, it, it, and that's what these presidents and, uh, and Congress are. Every Congress comes and goes. Every president comes and goes. But, but they're all just another brick in the wall. It doesn't matter Republican or Democrat. They're all destroying the country. 
it doesn't matter who it is. They're destroying it in the, you know, in one way or another. Yeah, once in a while, in the case of Trump, we'll get a bone thrown at us just a little bit. But for the most part, um, he's going down the same way. In fact, I, I don't know if you had a chance to ever see it, but over at the all-market.com, Brandon Smith's got a real interesting yeah. article on that. I actually shared situation. that. I shared that yesterday. Yeah, that's excellent piece of work. Um, and, um, you know, when you go back and you figure who these people are being funded by, in his case, he's he's not the first one that's made the case of Trump being funded by the Rothschild banking cartel and that kind of thing. He's not the only one that's made that suggestion, that, that comment. Um, but the point of the matter is these people are all backed by people that could really care less. What they want is what they want. It doesn't matter. Um, at the end of the day, um, you know, we don't matter a whole hill of beans out here for all intents and purposes. This is all flyover country to them. And my uh, my point that I keep making is, if we're going to have if we're going to have parties, let's start a new one called the Left Alone Party. We don't want anything <laughs> from you. Just stay out of our lives. Leave us alone. Uh, you guys go and uh, make all the misery amongst yourselves that you want, but you're not going to do it at our expense, and you're going to leave us alone. So. As the old saying goes, there are those who just want to be left alone and those who just won't leave them alone. Which one are you? Well, I, I would be very interested in the left alone party. In fact, if I could recommend a banner, it would be, oh, I don't know, a uh, coiled rattlesnake, perhaps uh, on, a, on a yellow field of flag saying, don't tread on me. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Just a thought. I, I wish we had an office supply here. I'd start getting flyers printed up called, uh, the, you know, flyers for the left alone party. Um, okay. I'm gonna, go ahead. I'll keep my eye out for it. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's something. I'm really serious. It's something I'm really getting. See, if nothing else, it would make people aware. You know. Hopefully. Okay. Well, I'm going to subscribe to your newsletter as soon as you tell me that it's coming out. I'll, I'll be there. There you go. <laughs> Thank you, Brian. Okay. Thanks, Sam. Good to hear from you. Eight zero one three three one eighty one thirteen. All right. Let's talk some good news. I think most of us can agree that if, if we want to sit and commiserate about uh, politics, there is plenty to commiserate about. But sometimes we forget that the state of humanity is actually excellent right now, and it's improving. I know you don't often hear that. In fact, you don't often hear that from me, which means I'm, I'm probably guilty of having blinders on as well. Donald J. Bordreau writing for the uh, the Trib Live. I'm not sure if I'm not sure where this is this is out of. I want to say it was maybe out of Minnesota anyway. He um he has a terrific column about exactly how the state of humanity is excellent and improving. Consider some of this. If you're looking for a reason to feel a little bit better about life, here it is. He says to encounter the news today is to encounter an America verging on destruction. Global warming will soon incinerate us, but not before income inequalities turn ordinary Americans into the slaves of oligarchs. And as these ghastly fates unfold, those of us who somehow escape being raped, robbed and cheated out of employment by immigrants and who aren't murdered by gun wielding maniacs will be impoverished by demonic mandarins in Beijing who've arranged for their own slaves to drown us in floods of underpriced goods. The only hope of avoiding existential calamity, of course, is to turn over goo gobs more power and money to your favorite tribe of politicians. Being superheroes, these politicians, and only they, can save us from Armageddon. <laughs> he says, pause. Breathe deeply. 
and consult two indispensable websites to get a truer, much happier picture of the state of humanity in general and of America in particular. One of these sites is Max Roser's Our World in Data. And let's start with life expectancy. In the United States and globally, life expectancy is at an all-time high. Today in the U.S., it's 78.9 years, which is 16% higher than in 1950 and 43% higher than it was just a century ago. One reason, but not by no means the only one for this happy trend, is the rise in cancer survival rates. And although global life expectancy is lower than in the U.S., it too is at an all-time high and continues to rise. Also high and rising is GDP per person. Now, the other website is humanprogress.org, a project led by the Cato Institute's Marion Tupi. Smile at these encouraging trends. The homicide rate from firearms in the U.S. today is about 25% lower than it was in 1990. The real value of U.S. capital stock, the value of the machines and other tools that help us to be so productive, is today 700% greater than it was in 1950 and 60% greater than it was in 2001. That was the year that China joined the World Trade Organization. To produce each dollar of GDP, we Americans today use only about one-third the amount of energy we used back in 1950 and only 63% of what we used in 1990. Per-person CO2 emissions in the U.S. hit its peak in 1973. Compared to then, each American today on average emits 27% fewer such emissions. He says the, great, the post-Great Depression year in which we Americans spent the largest share of disposable income on food was 1947, when we used 23.5% of this income to buy food. Today, we spend on food less than 10% of our disposable personal income. By the way, for those who eat out a lot, that, that figure might be a little bit higher, but that's a choice. And if you're in a position where you can choose to have somebody else prepare your meals, it doesn't sound like you have it so bad, does it? Donald Bordreau says, and the reason we spend less on food is that the prices of agricultural outputs today are less than half what they were in 1947. The typical American today, compared to the past, gets more calories from vegetable, from vegetables, rather, and he or she eats more protein. Overall, our consumption of, of calories is very high. My waistline would attest to that. He says we are much better fed in part today because cereal yields per hectare are so much higher than in the past, as are yields of other agricultural products, including vegetables. Now, Donald J. Bardreau says the above is just a tiny sample of the vast amount of informative data that are available from these two remarkable websites. So he says, visit them whenever you get discouraged about the state of the world. And I would encourage, again, take a little break from the mass media, the, the news, the mass news headlines. Because it's so seldom they report when things are going right. So often our, our news is driven by, well, you know, today <laughs> there's more bad news. If it bleeds, it leads. If it's salacious, if somebody's in trouble or somebody's doing something perverted. Wow, that's the stuff we're going to hear about first. Shift your focus once in a while. By the way, I will have a link in the show notes 
for this hour. You'll find it on LovingLiberty.net. And I would encourage you, go to these websites that he talks about. Max Roser's Our World in Data. And the other one is HumanProgress.org. But I'll have this article linked. You can jump on, check it out for yourself. Anytime you just need a little bit of reinforcement that, uh, hey, maybe things aren't as bad or as hopeless as you were thinking. And at the risk of losing listeners, I will tell you that if you can step away from the media from time to time, do a little media fast. It doesn't take more than just a, a couple of days. Sometimes it's a matter of hours before the world starts to look a little bit more normal. Welcome to the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. 801-331-8113 is the number if you'd like to join the conversation. Assuming that you are listening to the live feed and not just the podcast. If you're listening to the podcast, well, thanks. Maybe share it with a friend. All right, let's talk a little bit about rolling back the regulatory state. And I want to approach this from the standpoint of there are some places where I'm sure, you know, all that law and order and all of this, you know, regulation is intended to... Make our lives better. But there comes a point where we are getting diminishing returns. And this article that I saw from Dallas News is a perfect example of it. Dallas's ban on churches sheltering homeless won't be lifted in time for winter. The subheadline, religious organizations can't legally operate emergency shelters for severe weather in Dallas, but they're doing it anyway. This, this reminds me of... Just a couple of years ago, 90-some-year-old guy down in Florida who was uh, was getting arrested on the regular. Why? Because he was feeding the homeless. He was running a ministry where they were providing meals for the homeless. And I understand, well, you know, Brian, is like a bird feeder. You know, you put out that bird feeder, you're going to get more birds. I don't think that was the intent. But the idea was, look, there are homeless among us, or there are people who are severely in need. Why not let private individuals with their own money step up and to the best of their ability, meet those needs? Now, see, this is where people who have a hard time fighting the urge to click their heels will step forward. Now, well, we have to know that they have the ability to handle food safely. So there's a safety issue here. And then, of course, you got the NIMBY thing. Well, not in my backyard. I don't want homeless people hanging around because they know there's a free meal. And I got to tell you that at, at the heart of that, beneath that, that safe law and order perspective is a person who is uh, very self-centered and, and perhaps even selfish in their focus. Here's what I mean. <clears throat> Look, every city of any size and even some of the smaller cities have a homeless population. And I don't know that that's a, a problem that government needs to handle. 
And I say this based on historically, you know, who used to handle the problem when there were indigent people who could not uh, provide food, clothing, shelter for themselves. It was the community primarily done through charitable organizations, through churches, for instance, Salvation Army. They would provide the soup kitchen. They would provide the shelter. The one thing that they did not focus on, though, was creating long-term dependency. In other words, those who were in, in need were considered to be temporarily in a bad spot. That was understood. And the idea was to help them through that rough spot insofar as when they could get back up on their feet, which would be sooner than later because they weren't encouraged to, hey, just stay on this as long as you want. Get your kids signed up, too. See, politicians have the incentive to to get long-term dependency. Why? Because it creates a ready-made constituency. Now you're going to vote, right? (laughs) Remember, who's providing for you? But, of course, government, uh, government can't do quite the job that the private sector can do at least for for the same for the same amount of money government will take a much larger chunk of overhead why because they have so much bureaucratic administrative overhead that has to be met so isn't it interesting to read about how you know there's they're freezing temperatures they're facing in Dallas and officials were scrambling before they decided to open the K Bailey Hutchinson Convention Center to shelter those living on the streets but the city's still struggling with long-term fixes, and they have a zoning restriction preventing faith-based organizations from offering emergency shelters to the homeless during times of inclement weather. And the Dallas City Council isn't even going to vote on it till spring, nearly a year after the draft ordinance was first proposed. This is one of those things where I think they're well-intentioned. We're just trying to protect people from creating a bigger problem here. Well, people having to sleep out in the cold, isn't that kind of an immediate problem? I understand the bureaucracy is slow moving and we've got to decide who's going to do this. So maybe we need a new chapter in the city code. Zoning changes that have to go through the city plan commission and council approval. That's bureaucracy. And I have to applaud the civil disobedience that's going on here, because in spite of those code restrictions, there are still churches in Dallas that have decided to open their doors to the homeless. Now, currently, the city is saying, well, these overnight shelters have to be at least a thousand feet away from a church, residential district, elementary or secondary school, historic district, public park or other shelter. They also want them to get a special use permit. All I can tell you is if I were on the jury... For any church or any church leader who was brought up on, well, you know, you guys were illegally providing shelter for the homeless. Please put me on the jury. Because you could count on me not to vote to convict them. I'm going to shift gears here. I I found an excellent article yesterday from Jacob Hornberger from the Future of Freedom Foundation, FFF.org. It's called Coercion and Charity Are Opposites. And this is so good, I want to share it with you because I I think this helps to illustrate the point that I'm trying to make. And that is that when, when the government steps in to do something, coercion is always, without fail, going to be a part of the solution. Why? Because that's the dynamic by which government gets things done, by force. Now, Brian, surely you can't be suggesting that you know, the government's forcing us all to do things. Well, I don't know. Why don't you try not paying your taxes for a while? And see if eventually the government doesn't resort to force to get you to do what it wants you to do or to fund what it needs you to fund. 
Sure, we can pretend it's all voluntary. <laughs> yes, of course. You can always, you know, move somewhere else. But the bottom line is, if you don't do what your government, be it municipal, state, or federal government, is telling you to do, that's the one institution that claims the right to legitimately use force to make you do what it wants. Here's how Jacob Hornberger describes it. He says the entire welfare state way of life is based on the concept of force. Through the threat of arrest, prosecution, incarceration, and fine, the American people are forced to be good, caring, and compassionate to others. He says here's how the process works. People are forced to deliver a percentage of their income to the federal government, which in turn delivers the money to others. It's not a 100% turnover, of course, because some of the money is used to cover the expenses associated with performing this service, such as salaries for bureaucrats in the IRS and the federal departments and agencies that distribute the money. Now, there is nothing voluntary about the IRS and federal income taxes. If someone fails to pay his federal income taxes, he is subject to being severely punished by the federal government. The fact that a person's employer withholds a certain percentage of his income and sends it to the federal government doesn't change the nature of the coercion. If the employer fails to send the money to the federal government, he himself is subject to arrest, prosecution, jail, and fine. This is the way that every welfare state program operates. Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, farm subsidies, education grants, food stamps, public housing, foreign aid, and many more. The federal government forcibly takes money from Americans and gives it to others. And the rationale undergirding this system is goodness, care, and compassion. The system we are told not only reflects how good Americans are. But he says, how can force and goodness be reconciled? In fact, aren't goodness and force opposites? He says, suppose you're in a grocery store and the cashier asks, would you like to donate a dollar to help the local hospital provide medical care to the poor? You can say yes or you can say no. That's what freedom is all about. Now, people might criticize you for saying no, but that's not the point. The point is that freedom necessarily entails the right to say no. Suppose the cashier instead says, federal law requires that we add $1 to your grocery bill, which we are sending to the local hospital to help provide medical care to the poor. What then? In that case, freedom has been destroyed because the customer is no longer free to say no. The law has forced him to, quote, donate his money to the hospital, whether he wants to or not. Does that federal law reflect the goodness of the customer's? Of course not. And Jacob Hornberger explains, goodness can come only out of the choices that people voluntarily make, not when they're forced to be good, caring, and compassionate. I don't know why this is such a difficult concept. We'll come back to his article here in a few moments. We're coming up against the break here. But look, I want to live in a society that is virtuous, where people do care about each other, where they step up and they help shoulder one another's burdens and they look out for one another. But I want to live in a society where that is authentic, meaning it's freely chosen, not coerced. Because virtue that is coerced isn't really virtue. It's just slavery. 
by slightly different means. You're not a better person when you do something that you're being forced to do. You're a better person when you have the option of not doing that good thing, but you choose to do it anyway. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. Brian Hyde at your service. We're talking about coercion versus charity. Now, we're coming up on a very charitable time of year. I don't know about you, but I've seen a lot of people, myself included, who kind of rediscover what it means to uh, to give of yourself, to, to be a charitable individual. Something about Christmas, it just it brings it out. And I wish I could say, oh, yeah, that's me. That's I'm successfully charitable all the year long. But I try to be. But I'll be honest, it's it's a lot easier at Christmas time. There is just something about the spirit of the season that uh, makes it easier. I don't know how to explain it. I have an article here by Jacob Hornberger from the Future of Freedom Foundation, FFF.org. I'll have this linked in the show notes when this is up for podcast at LovingLiberty.net. And he makes a very powerful case here that you can't be considered truly good, caring, or compassionate unless you have freely chosen to be those things. If you have a law or if you have some government agency coercing you into doing those things, yeah, there's some good that's being done, but it's not coming from your freely chosen voluntary efforts. Which brings us to the question of safety net or freedom. Now, he says that the foundation of the entire welfare state is the notion that people cannot be trusted to be good caring or compassionate to others. We're told that if left free to keep all of their own money, Americans would never donate sufficient amounts to help the poor, needy, and disadvantaged. So that's where coercion and the federal government come into play. The federal government intervenes into the process. It forces people to provide a safety net for others. The reason it's called a safety net is that since people will not donate enough money to others, those needing assistance will fall into the safety net of the federal government's welfare state rather than hit the ground and die. Social Security, which is the crown jewel of the welfare state, is a good example. The idea that younger people would never help their parents and grandparents on a voluntary basis if they were free to keep all their own money. Thus, they must be forced to do so through the coercive apparatus of the IRS and the criminal justice system. But why shouldn't younger people have the freedom to make that choice? Now, Jacob Hornberger, he's no, you know, Pollyanna here. He says, sure, some might well turn their backs on their parents and grandparents. But isn't that the essence of freedom, the right to say no? And even if they do refuse to help their parents and grandparents, what about friends, neighbors, churches, community groups and charitable foundations? Couldn't they be counted on to come to the assistance of others? See, welfare state is saying, no, no, no. These people have to be forced to care for others. Well, Jacob Hornberger says, I say people can be trusted to do the right thing, but that in any event, people have the natural God-given right to make that choice on their own. Given that God trusted man when he vested him with free will, with respect to charitable decisions, should we be vesting Caesar with the power to interfere with God's process through the initiation of force? Shouldn't our political system instead be based on faith in ourselves, in others, in freedom, and in God? 
By the way, you would be surprised how many, you know, bona fide conservatives, small government conservatives, nonetheless, have that fear But somebody might not do the right thing. Therefore, I can excuse government stepping in and forcing people. Look, there are I've I've spent a little bit of time in the nonprofit sector. And I can tell you that for, for people who haven't been a part of that, especially a fundraiser within the nonprofit sector, it might be easy to think, oh, yeah, all these fat cats out there, they're just sitting on all this money and just counting it, and, you know, Scrooge McDuck, you know, whatever caricature they want to conjure up. But I can tell you there are hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars in private money being used for a variety of different causes. All across this country, every single year. Sometimes it's in the form of grants. Sometimes it's in the the form of just, you know, a, a donation or a check. There are a lot of folks out there who have been able to amass wealth and have left foundations and, and charitable organizations that continue to do great work long after they're gone. And it's not because the government is sitting there sticking a gun in their ribs and going, you're going to do this, right? If we ever want to see what real freedom is like, we're going to have to, at some level, come back to the idea that we um, can be trusted to make the right choice. And if somebody decides, hey, I'm keeping my money, let them. It's their money. We may have to revisit a certain commandment about thou shalt not steal in case anybody's gotten a little bit fuzzy on it. But if it's not yours, you don't have a right to take it from someone else or to dictate. Well, then you take it from them and we'll put it to good use. Most people will do the right thing, given the opportunity. But when you make it kind of a default thing, well, we're going to take it out of your paycheck. You won't even notice it's missing. (laughs) Yeah, you know. That's when people switch off their conscience. Why? Well, you know, needs are being taken care of. They have government programs, I guess, that'll take care of this. So I don't have a personal vested interest in living up to that duty, especially, you know, if you're a Christian, that's part of your duty. Actually, this is true in a number of different religions, but I'm speaking specifically to Christians. You are your brother's keeper. But it's a lot easier to pawn that off when government is already taking part of your money from you and just, well, you know, I'll let them do it. Well, they're going to also fund some things you may not be so much in agreement with. Come on, drag queen story time, anyone? All right, one final article here I want to share in this hour. Can you roll back regulation, the type that keeps, for instance, charitable organizations from uh, from sheltering the homeless in, in cold weather? Here's an interesting take from Robert E. Wright from the Mercatus Center. He says, actually, we could just flip the switch. And I take it back. He's not from the Mercatus Center. He is actually uh, the the Neff Family Chair of Political Economy at Augustana University. But it's the Mercatus Center, which recently published a report on America's morbidly obese regulatory code, which, by the way, is over 100 million words despite President Trump's attempt to drain the swamp with Executive Order 13771. Now, this report correctly points out that regulatory accumulation hurts the poor most of all. That means much of the residue of increased income inequality is uh, left after proper adjustments 
by uh, Phil Magnus, Vincent Geloso and others might be rooted in more in increased regulation than market forces. Apparently, uh, Mr. Wright has written a book about South Dakota's long history of relatively high levels of entrepreneurship and light economic regulations. He says this Mercatus report also details two major policy reforms which are designed to reduce the number of old regulations and slow the introduction of new ones. And I think these are pretty innovative. A regulatory review commission like the Military Base Realignment and Closure Commission created in the late 1980s and the implementation of some form of regulatory budgeting. But he says it concludes that unfortunately reversing the growth of regulatory accumulation and avoiding a quick return to massive regulatory code isn't as as easy as simply flipping a switch. To which Mr. Wright says, why not? Why not just flip a switch? He says, I envision a law that would automatically cut the oldest 5% of the Code of Federal Regulations annually, unless some agency proved that a regulation created a net economic benefit to the satisfaction of, say, a majority of 11 evaluators randomly pulled from a pool of 100 or 1,000 pre-qualified experts trained in such analyses. That would be a pricey procedure, as such experts don't come cheap, but he says that's exactly the point. Such a law would ensure that every regulation was scrutinized at least once every 20 years, and automatically eliminate all those that no agency thought important enough to subject to review. As agencies are budget-constrained, they'd be forced to prioritize, to defend the regulations they really believe are beneficial, and they'd have less incentive to create new regulations just for the sake of covering their backsides or justifying their own existence. Now, Robert Wright says, some people seem to believe that the entire country would collapse without all those sacred words. But, of course, they're wrong, as many regulations are dead letters, while others impose costs with little or no corresponding benefit. The key is to identify those and get rid of them automatically, while creating incentives for regulators and the regulated to identify the potentially most beneficial regulations for objective analysis. This is the sort of plan that presidential hopefuls should be thinking about because it aligns with incentives with presumably wide shared goals like efficient government. But it also encourages innovation and it aids the poor, not through humiliating disincentives to work, but by taking the government's heavy regulatory jackboots off their necks. He's got some great links in this article, too. You will find this in the show notes which will be posted along with this episode as I put it up for podcast here shortly. You can find it at lovingliberty.net, hour two, just around the corner. Stick around. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. 